episode of Vertello on Air. I'm Mike Stockton, coming to you from Frankfurt, Main, Germany. And I'm Balash Renzi, coming to you from Karlsruhe, Germany. Balash. Mike. Alles Roger. Everything's fine. What's uh, What was on TV? <laughs> oh, uh, we, you know, we watched some, um, like, baking shows with uh, my daughter, Sasha. Okay. She's really into baking, so we just watched these... Uh, like you know, reality those, type stuff and like yeah, these those like 30 minute things and yeah okay. cool They're good so yeah. and she's has she done anything all by herself already oh yeah she bakes i don't know probably every weekend or every couple weekends oh. yeah so very cool well last she, week i did my first banana bread oh okay how was that it wasn't a disaster but let me tell you something if the recipe says two to three bananas just use two. <laughs> Three is a lot of bananas. It's, it's, I mean, the thing was thick, I should say. Yeah. It was not bad. It was not bad at all. But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, to be honest, on the one end, I'm not a culinary expert, but I'm also really not interested in food too much. You know, I know people sometimes go to different countries and, Especially when, uh, at least as my friends used to go to the city, oh, I have to eat seafood all day, every day. And I'm like, I could not care less about the food, man. It's really <laughs> secondary thing too. I mean, don't get me wrong. If we're in Italy, you know, having a nice glass of Pinot Grigio, whatever, and the pizza is, is perfect. I love it. But if I'm, if I'm by the sea, I don't like fish and stuff. So I, this really doesn't move me. But that was the issue with me in Tokyo. You know, like everybody was... Wanting to eat sushi and, and sushi and yeah, and I was like, nah, can we just like could do some like normal food, like <laughs> no fried fish fins and that kind of stuff that the the girls wanted to show us around our colleagues. Yeah, well, so so there we we diverge. I enjoy it, but uh, what I'm most impressed about with my daughter, at least, is that I get stressed on trying to do that stuff, and she just sort of dives right into it. She's very uh, fearless when it comes to cooking. So, I mean, what else? I mean, what 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 can what can go wrong, right? At the end of the day, it's just food. Worst case scenario is you have to dump it, throw it out, right? Exactly, yeah. start it all over again. I mean, that's the yeah. attitude. But I guess maybe that's a that's a male female thing that men are. I don't know. We're not wired for that stuff for the most part. I don't. Yeah, I, I I think I also think it's personality. Like I'm yeah. very exacting. I'm not one of those people in the kitchen who can just like go in and throw in a pinch of this or I'm, I'm measuring everything, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what did I try over the COVID thing? I tried beer bread. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it used like the yeast and the beer to make, to make the bread and – I liked it, but that was probably because I made it, but my family didn't. <laughs> but there's this, there's this breaded, like chicken and stuff, which they use the use uh, beer for the for the batter, right? So they, I'm I'm not sure exactly how it's done, but I, I love that very much. You know, chicken breast, and then you know you like mix bread and I mean mix a beer and 
I don't know, like basically you make a batter, but the batter is based yeah. on beer, and then you know just just flip some chicken breast in it, throw it in the uh, on the pan, and that that's pretty nice. Or or deep fry it. That's that kind of stuff I like. But yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, you're about to go on vacation, yeah. Yes, sir. Next week. Uh, well, actually, we're recording this on a Sunday. I'm leaving Monday morning, early morning. Um, nice. I'll be there for a week. Coming back in a, in the next Monday, so in a week, seven, eight days, actually. Um, it's a it's a colleague's wedding, so we're kind of connecting this and staying a few days in the south of Spain, and then going for the wedding, and me and a bunch of other colleagues, and then um, coming back after the wedding on a Monday and twenty fifth. So, and then nice. it's uh, you know it's already November. Damn it. Yeah, I hear you. It's it's going to go fast here from now until the holidays. And, oh yeah. Uh, Christmas. I'm headed Maybe. I'm headed to a place in Poland that I've never been to. Oh, okay. Where are you going? Uh, which which part of the city? You ready? S Z C Z E C I N. So Chechen, I would say, but I'm I'm told that I, I don't quite get that whole four consonants in a row right. So apologies to our Polish listeners. I guess S N Z is an is an Esh sound, like Remember, like Lukash, like he writes his name with L U K A S Z, but it's a sh sound, so it's maybe Shechin. I'm not sure. I'm also not well, not not fluent. Is is a is an overstatement, but I'm not. Well, let, 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 let's let's listen to this. Wait a second. Uh, it says, "Ah, oh, no, I can't. I've, I thought I can play it because I'm just looking it up on uh, on Wikipedia, but." No chance. Maybe Shechin. Yeah, that's that's basically how it's written. And in German, it's Stettin. So, yeah, Shechin, Stettin, something like that. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see. I uh I'm I'm place I've never been. So, it's supposed to be nice 400,000 people, you know. Yeah, no, it's a big town, I guess. It's up on the water. Wow. So very close. Yeah, very close to the German border. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Flying? I am. I'm going to Berlin. So it'll be my first time in the new Berlin airport. And then we're getting picked up and it's like a two, two and a half hour drive uh from there. Okay. Ah, so you're flying to Berlin and then taking the car. Have you been to the new cool. Berlin airport? The one that was like <laughs> sitting there for no. years? So. No, I, I I heard the stories and I heard that the the old one is now um, I think it's out of order, so they just use it for like car shows and racings and whatever. But uh, to be honest with you, come to think of it, I don't think I've ever flown into Berlin. Okay, I've taken the train a number of times, but maybe not the airport. I want to say because the the old one was pretty wild. Like you know, it was the Thought I can't remember if it was like the, you know, post-war uh, thing or an ex-military base, but mm-hmm. the um, it had those gates where you checked into each one and then you went into a waiting area. So like each one had its own security, and the distance between like the curb where you got dropped off and the gate, like you walked in and it was this narrow concourse, so there was nothing to do at that airport. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. There was no reason to get there early. And uh, yeah, I flew there once from uh, to like Cleveland direct, which was crazy. 
Okay. Yeah. Cleveland, Cleveland, Berlin. Yeah, back in the day when Continental Airlines, that was like a big hub for them in uh, Cleveland. So, yeah, hmm. but that flight obviously doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, yeah, well, maybe next time you can give us an update on how the new Berlin airport looks like, and I can tell you how the Malaga airport, but I think you know the Malaga airport. So Yeah, I've been there, but uh, yeah. interesting to see this Berlin airport that was obviously the subject of so much... Uh, well, it was kind of the uh, a sore spot for the uh, for Germans because you know normally so process intensive and on time and everything and this and the uh, and the uh, what was it the Elbe Philharmonie up in Hamburg mm-hmm. was the other one that was just yeah. sitting there for years and years and years and over budget so yeah yeah hmm. kind of interested we to see, see it. I'm curious to say what you uh, curious to see what you have to say about it next week, though. I'm sure the Lufthansa service there will be incredibly friendly. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it doesn't matter your, the color of your card. It seems so. Huh? No. You can have a the gray one, the gold one, a diamond one, whatever. It's just well, yeah, they treat everyone equally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Yeah. So. <laughs> So today, we thought we would hit upon a bit of a, uh, a controversial topic, or you know, maybe one that's a little bit of a don't want to. We don't want to come off as downers today, but we certainly wanted to talk a little bit about the watch market. There have been a few things lately that have, um, yeah, been sort of out out on the uh, on the front pages, and we wanted to mention it, um, mm-hmm. but. And then talk a little bit about what what we think is going to happen, and um, I'll ask you a surprise question, uh, and then okay. we'll see what uh, see what comes of it. So, in any case, we can start with the Hangelinks controller, and I went mm-hmm. first last time, so you get to go. Okay, so I got a watch that I um, I covered for for Fratello and the article is not out yet, but I'm sure maybe next week or the week after it's going to hit the the pages and um, believe it or not, it's the new Doxa army Mm. with the bronze bezel. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, uh, I, uh, well, just to give it a, uh, I guess a a bit of a background info on the watches for, for those of you guys who don't know, Doxa released the, uh, the, the army, which is basically, a model they already um, came out with last year as a limited edition in a black ceramic case, but the dial design was brand new based on the vintage uh, Doxa Army that I think came to the market, not to the market actually, was a, a offered to a, an elite corp of divers, uh, Swiss divers in 1968 until 75, if I'm not mistaken, about 150 pieces were uh, given out or issued to these divers, the special divers. And so based on that, Doxa created uh, uh, the Army last year as a limited edition with Watches of Switzerland. And, um, of course, there was the issue with the Synchron and Army. I think we covered this. Mike, you talked about this mm-hmm. um, a few months ago. Um, maybe when you visited me, probably. That, I'm not sure. But we, we definitely covered this issue. Anyways. Um, so this year they came out with the regular production model, which comes in a steel case, and there are two versions. The, basically, you have a steel case, steel bezel, black ceramic inlay version, and then you have a steel case, bronze bezel, 
dark green uh, or military green uh, ceramic inlay version, and that's the one that I have. Okay. Uh, so um, this one is the more expensive one because of the bronze uh, bezel. This is um, on the beads of rice bracelet. Okay. Uh, it's 2,200, 2,290 euros. Mm-hmm. And on a rubber strap, it's, I think, 2,250. So there's already like 40 euros difference between the, the bracelet and the rubber strap. You can have it, the bronze with the black or with the green rubber strap. Or you can have the steel one with the steel bezel for 2,090 or the steel one with the rubber strap on 2,050. So uh, the the steel one is a little bit above 2,000 and for the bronze, about 2,300 or a bit less depending on your choice of of strap or bracelet. And um, I saw this at Geneva Watch Days this year when it came out a few months ago. And and I have to say I, I gravitated towards the bronze immediately it may not be because of the bezel i'm guessing it's more because of the the dark blue uh, dark green uh, bezel inlay i i like the contrast of that and i think i also put it in the article that the whole watch if you think about it it's like steel and bronze and green and then orange hands and then beige and black dial so it's on paper it, it sounds a bit crazy but it just it just seemed to work <laughs> and um i got this watch on the on the green rubber strap with a brand new re-engineered Doxa buckle, which, as you and I both know, is it's a much needed re-engineering. Absolutely. Um, the old one, the one that you and I have on the on the black lung, uh, is kind of outdated. Funnily enough, I'm uh, I packed the black lung uh, for the for the vacation, so it's coming <laughs> with me to Spain tomorrow. Cool. Um, so yeah, that's the watch, and it's it's um it's pretty cool. Obviously, it's a it's a three hundred T based on a three hundred T, so it's. Uh, the black long we had was a 300, a much slimmer uh, profile. This one is is a tad bigger and thicker and chunkier, um, but it's a it's a very cool watch nonetheless. And um, so I'm wearing it for a few days before I send it back. So you've you've had a number of doxes over the last year or two between the uh, the Caribbean blue, you've had yeah. the carbon, and now you've yeah. got this. So. You got all three, and I know you're a huge fan of the carbon. But how, how does this one compare? And would you? Is this the one you adopt for, or are you still? Yeah, it's, a- it's a good question. Yeah, because the the carbon and the the aquamarine they were both the sub three hundred profile. So the case is much thinner, right? In mm-hmm. in in both the aquamarine and the and the carbon. Carbon was was an amazing watch. I, I still, you know. I, have very fun memories about wearing that one because it has a carbon case, carbon dial, and the carbon bezel. So the whole watch is like super light. And because it's a 300 case, it's much thinner. This one is is a bit chunkier. And I have to say, um, what I what I'm not really a fan of is how the how it feels on the rubber strap because um, on on the Doxa rubber strap, it kind of creates this this loop, if you will, but it doesn't really follow the curvature of your wrist uh, it kind of goes out a little bit doesn't it from the case kind of, yeah the, 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 the lugs kind of um float if you know what i mean yep. um on the bracelet i think it's much different because obviously the beads of bright bracelet is is super cool one and it's very comfortable and i would think maybe on a on a softer on a less profiled rubber strap uh it, it might um adapt more to the shape or, or, of your wrist but that's the but that's just like me being you know nitpicking here but um 
it's a much more substantial substantial watch than the 300 for sure so if you're looking for like if you have a smaller wrist like you or you're looking for a much thinner model i think the sub 300 is still the 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 watch to go for and i mean they have ton of colors uh sub 300 you know the orange black silver blue yellow the turquoise or the aquamarine white now they have this all white thing um and if you are a big boy or you want like a bigger chunkier watch and i'd say go go for the army or any other sub 300 model for that for that matter yeah cool no it, it it's definitely neat i mean i imagine it feels probably wears a lot like the the synchron or your old uh Black, uh, what it was, a shark hunter. So it's probably it's a, a shark, very yeah, exactly. type feel, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're you're totally right. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a much thicker case, so it's it's absolutely like that. But yeah, it's a great watch. I mean, it's you know, it's I think it's very hard to go wrong with Doxa, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I think they did a nice job with these colors. I wasn't too sure at first, but I think it had, it was really kind of a nice little surprise, right? Hmm. No, it's it's. Um, I mean, it's it's obviously a vintage inspired piece, so that's why you have the yellow uh, loom and the and the beige dial. But it's it just it just it works. And then and the, this dark blue bezel is extremely subtle difference. And on on the bronze, it doesn't really look green. And and of course, the, the bronze is shiny, but eventually it will it will um, develop a patina. Yeah. So um, you can also check it out by the way on the site. Like you can scroll down and see um, a, a comparison between a brand new army and one with a patinated bezel and you can oh, okay. com- uh, compare the, the, the looks. It's, it's pretty cool. That is cool. All right. Yeah. Well, look forward to your article then. Thank you. Nice. So you want what's to on yours? Yeah, I'm, I'm wearing, um, my Omega Speedmaster X 33 gen one. Oh, I saw it on on Instagram. Yeah, so it's back, and uh, it was a 30-euro battery change, which I thought was very fair. Um, You know, running, they set the time, which is great, because I didn't have to pull out that big binder and figure out how to do it. (laughs) Um, But it's it's running really well, and I'm going to commit to wearing this watch more than I ever have before. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very cool piece, isn't it? It, it, it is. Um, I I was wearing it on like a dark green canvas strap yesterday. And today I put it on a, one of the, uh, Artem straps. So Mm -hmm. this, uh, kind of technical looking synthetic material, and I think it looks really good on there. Uh, the, the, the watch does well with, you know, that kind of more tactical looking material and also a little bit of padding. So it, it, it fits it well. Um, I'm going to wear this watch cause I'm going to travel this week for a few days. So I'm going to bring this the whole time. And the only reservation I have is this Balash. Like I was, um, you know, I, I, okay. I used the Peloton bike today and I was thinking about going for a run and, you know, I'd throw a G shock on my wrist. Right. And, uh, this thing looks like it's a tough watch, but it's, you know, not a heavily water resistant watch, is it? It's like 30 meters if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I guess it's, you know, technically tougher than like the mechanical Speedmaster professional because it's quartz, but I, 
you know, it, it looks like a watch that I would want to like, you know, you could put through a wall, but it really isn't, is it? I mean, and but yours is the Gen 1, right? Yeah. You think it, it changed over? Well, I don't think they're that way anyway. I don't think they're like properly tough watches, are they? No, I don't, but I, I guess that was, that was never the no, goal, was it? It's just like in my head, I've got, you know, digital type watch. Um, I, I always associate it with G-Shock. So <laughs> it, uh, it just has in my head yeah. and it's kind of beefy and it's uh, certainly looks tactical enough, but yeah, probably not my running buddy, you know? No, no, but uh, I mean, look, it's, it's been serving uh, astronauts for, for a while now. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you still see them um, every once in a while when you, and you see photos from the space station or somebody in training coming back or going, wearing an X-33 or one of those uh, Gen 2s or whatever. So I guess, uh, yeah, maybe it's not the sturdiest and uh, it's not a, definitely not a G-Shock, but um, I guess it gets the job done for, for what it was uh, designed for. Well, let's see if it can handle me the next three days in Poland. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's going to be fine. You just have to make sure that you know how to, how to, uh, work it. I think that's what people sometimes complain, complain about that is like so many features that they're like this button, that button, they don't even know. Dude, I'm not touching any of them. I'm not. Well, the feet, yeah, exactly. You might as well just set the alarm like three in the morning and then you're not, not able to turn it off and Unless you download the manual, you have to suffer the uh, occasional three o'clock uh, phone calls. Uh, I mean, uh, alarms. But yeah, well, I've had it home for more than 24 hours and it hasn't beeped. So I'm not touching anything. So I don't think there's any alarm set, but it does look cool. I got to say it's a cool design. And I think it's a remark to my Instagram post that I've barely worn this watch. And I, I must say. I dig it. And I think my tastes have changed a little bit that, you know, this is something that is appealing to me now. No, totally, totally. I think it's a, it's a wonderful piece and, and I don't have one at York. York has one and right. And he's, he wears his pretty often. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he seems to love it. And, um, what is I he know I have, have gen, gen one or gen two. Um, I would like to say, that it's a Gen 2, but let me quickly check his Instagram and see if there's a post. He's got a Gen 1. Okay. Gen 1 as well, according to the crown anyways. Okay. Yeah, they're cool. I, 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 you know, after you told me last time that they've gone up in price, I looked and I don't know, they're still, what, two to 2,500, I guess? It's it's not cheap, yeah. I, I, I thought that you can get one for like, Twelve, fifteen hundred, but not really. I mean, if you want one on a bracelet and fairly good condition, maybe with the box and papers, hopefully, then 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 it's going to be expensive. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, expensive. It's relative, right? But, but it's not cheap. Yeah. The fact that it's a twenty-year-old quartz watch. Yeah. Because I think RJ sold it to me. I can't remember if it was around twelve hundred bucks or something, but it had uh, right. something like that. But that, of course, was five six years ago. So. I mean, maybe if I go back to Tokyo, this is something I should look for, you know? Yeah, it could be because there are a lot of them over there. I, I notice on uh, Chrono 24, a lot of them are for yeah. sale from there and the prices are pretty good. So Yeah, like a budget like a budget X33, yeah, maybe. Go for it. That'd be cool. We'll see. Yeah. Nice. So, look, the watch market and um, <laughs> yeah. we, we're, we're certainly not picking on anything here, but 
The other week, um, Hodinkee had its ten uh, ten event, so the tenth of October, and you know ten ten being the, the typical position of hands that people like to photograph, and yeah. they also celebrated this by I think they had like ten modern Rolex models for sale at retail price, like one every hour for 10 hours. And then, um, 10% off, I yeah, think they had 10, 10% off in their shop and, uh, yeah. on watches. And I think, um, you know, cool, whatever. Uh, but a lot of people who commented or, you know, the back chatter was, Ooh, okay. This, this is starting to show that, you know, they're either holding a good bit of inventory or things are slowing down a bit. And we certainly don't want to talk about that, but, you know, recently, well, well, there's certainly been a lot of talk about how the secondary markets are slowing on modern watches. And then I'm not sure if you noticed it in our email box, but we got the uh, Morgan Stanley Q3 watch market report. And this is uh, done uh, with, uh, I guess, uh, Watch Charts, which is a kind of a neat website. They uh, they utilize their data to, you know, produce a lot of the the analytics. And mm-hmm. so I read through it today. It's like twenty three pages, although you know the back third is is sort of just explaining, you know, some of the indexes that they track. You know what makes what makes up the index. So when they say Rolex, you know, it makes up a uh, it's a number of models that they're uh, using to create uh, whatever uh, quarter to quarter tracking method. So it's like 10 different models or 20 different models weighted with different percentages based on pricing or, you know, number of transactions or something like that. And yeah, obviously um, things are down. So, I found it interesting that uh, they basically said March, April this year was peak. Yeah. So that was the peak of the secondary watch market. And note that what they're tracking are watches that were in production, I believe last year into this year. So this is not vintage. It's basically modern watches uh, that, you know, basically the big hype pieces that everybody talks about. Right. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, Q3 versus Q2 showed, they say, some stabilization. So things were down roughly 7 to 8% versus, I guess, a pretty big um, Q2 from Q1 drop of like 20%. And mm-hmm. I, I, found, um, I found it interesting because they tracked brands like Rolex, Vacheron, uh, AP, PP, um, and then... You know, now Long A and Gerard Perigo, Bulgari. So yeah, just, just to recap here, basically they, they said um, Q3 versus Q2 was down 7-8%. Um, and that was Q2 to Q1 down, looked like roughly 20%. And mm-hmm. they track a number of brands, you know, all the big ones, the, the Rolex, the AP, the Patek, Omega, and everything. And it was, uh, and then there's, so there's some charts and then there's some commentary and (laughs) I I found it funny. They, they said that, um, with, they they said the market has definitely become more speculative than it was pre COVID, (laughs) which is, I don't think, a a real, uh, uh, 
leap to make yeah for for most of us who are somehow involved with this right there have been a lot of people who dumped into this market and surprise surprise they're they're the ones who are obviously trying to get out of it right now exactly and you know that the some fascinating things though like um rolex of course took a lot of heat you know they they performed worse than the paddocks and the ap's uh, by far in terms of percentage drop, but then you look, and this is, this to me was just pretty wild. So production numbers. So y- y- you think like Rolex and they produce, it says they estimate 1.05 million watches per year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they're putting them into the same discussion as paddock 68,000 watches. AP 45,000 watches. Yeah. So, I mean, I I look at it. Sure. I mean, if you're a person who doesn't care about watches, but only bought these things and as an investment percentages are percentages, but it's still pretty amazing to me that this company that makes over a million watches a year is the gold standard. Yeah. No matter if they've gone up or down, it's just crazy how big they are and how all important they are in this space. Um, but we knew that, um, Let's see some other interesting things. So yeah, it tells you how, how powerful and sort of pervasive Rolex is just uh, the fact that they're being bucketed into the same, uh, same area. Um, some interesting things. They said they've, they've now seen that uh, like the two tone Explorer and sea dweller are basically trading at retail. Um, hmm. Comments about how Bulgari, Gerard Perigo and long a, versus the others have actually gone up, but, um, not nothing wrong with their watches. I, I sort of look at that as a little bit of a, uh, well, people, people couldn't buy the other things and we're turning to these brands. Yeah. And yeah, that's always the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, they talked about long a basically making 5,000 watches per year, by the way. So that, that was interesting as well. Yeah. Um, Cartier, despite the best attempts for the watch media to write tons and tons and tons of articles about them. And here again, nothing against Cartier. I like the watches. They brought up the Santos, which trades at 19% below retail. Wow. Yeah. Um, Tudor on average, minus 26% below retail. Mm. Um, and pretty much said that, you know, the Black Bay 58 really sparked a lot of interest with them, but, you know, things have faded. It's been out now for four or five years. And yeah, the, some of the prices were pretty interesting. So a steel Daytona retails for $14,550. Um, on January 1st, the average price was 36.6. Peak mm-hmm. was 47.4, and now is it is at 32.6. Um, they stated that they thought that the AP Royal Oak and the Nautilus have done better, despite the fact they've also come down very heavily because those the you know there's some discontinued. Uh, models now, or at least in the Nautilus mm-hmm. case in the Royal Oak, there were some discontinued models that occurred over the last year. So yeah, it, not, nothing. I think if you 
sort of casually or I shouldn't say casually, but watch the market and listen or, or read forums. Nothing here is too surprising in the report, but it was interesting to see it in kind of a graphical form. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think it also tells us with, you know, these two-tone sports models starting to really fall from Rolex or, you know, even the steel pieces like the Explorer, Explorer 2, Air King, you know, starting to come back down towards retail. It, it sort of tells you that the stuff on the edge is still on the edge. Yeah. And therefore when people talk about 34 millimeter watches or things like that, I would say that, um, yeah, those are going to remain in my view, they're going to remain not the, the mainstream type stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting facts. I I don't even want to know where to start. I end up the, the, the one thing about Tudor, I think we talked about this earlier that it's uh, I, I I truly love the brand and I really um, hope that they can come out with new stuff. But but uh, it was inevitable, isn't it, that yeah. the, that the Black Bay thing will fade eventually? I mean, they've been on this, I should say, or milking this story for for a decade now, and of course, eventually this will fade. There's there's only so many Black Bays you can do, and um, I think with the new Pelagos, this is this was a, a very interesting albeit not too new uh, way to introduce something because they just basically took the um took a, an existing model which is i think behind the, the black bay one of the, the the most popular models and and you know let's shrink the sh- size a bit and it's we will see if it works or not but but um i like tudor and i enjoy their watches and i i hope that it's going to be you know they're going to find their way and, and and i mean at the end of the day they're they're a Rolex partner company or sister company. So not, not much uh, is going to happen there, I guess, in terms of, um, um, that they, you know, they're not, um, they're not going to go out of business. No. And, and I mean, again, we're talking about this report, which is purely looking at the, the secondary market price. I mean, to me, Not that you'd really want it to happen because it would obviously affect their new sales. Uh, but hey, if if secondary Tudor Black Bays were fifty five percent below retail, that would be a great win for people who want a really good watch, right? So, sure, that's absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the other thing which you mentioned is also something that people should keep in mind and put into perspective is the number of pieces that these watch brands produce. Yeah. I mean, as you said, AP and 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 Lange. I mean, that's AP, sorry, uh, 40,000, Patek, 60,000, Blancpain, less than 40,000 as well, but uh, Lange, 5,000. So, I mean, yes, you can you can put two watches next to each other and say, this is 15 and this is 15, or that's 30 and that's 30. But then also the amount of watches they produce is, is obviously a, a big difference. Um, and I think a lot of us, most of us, including me, um, we sometimes forget that. Yeah. Um, and 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 yes, you're right. In this case, if we look at look at this uh, from this perspective, from the number of pieces, Rolex is is a beast with over a million watches. Um, funnily enough, actually, um, I just received the Chrono Twenty Four State of the Watch Industry PR report, oh, okay. um, which which is a, a bit different. But um, uh, I think 
that the data that Cloud24 has is much bigger than than the data that that your uh, report was working uh, with. But I'm not sure. But I, I would assume. Then again, the Chrono 24 report is solely based on the Chrono 24 data. So mm-hmm. you can also say that it's corrupted. Um, I'm just going to go and read a few figures um, for you as well and, and for the listeners. So purchases by countries in 2022. Um, it says that 18% of all the purchases in 2022 on Chrono 24 comes from the U.S., Okay. 16% comes from Germany, 9% comes from Italy, 7% comes from France, and 50% is the rest. And these were so buyers USA or sellers? Germany, this is purchases, so uh, buyers. Okay. So USA, Germany, Italy, and France, they, they make up 50% of the purchases uh, on Chrome 24 in 2022. And it says that the sales volume in the first six months of 2022 was 43% higher than the previous year. Okay. Um, watches a bot on Chrono24, um, which could be interesting. 41% Rolex. Wow. 9% Omega. So Omega and <laughs> Rolex already 50%. Wow. 7% Patek. 5% AP. 3.5% Breitling and three, 33% others. Wow. So the top five is Rolex, Omega, Patek, Audemars and Breitling respectively, and then others 33%. And so it says Rolex accounted for over 40% of the total sales volume in the first six months of 2022. <laughs> so ju- just, I repeat it again. Rolex accounted for over 40% of total sales volume in the first six months of 2022. And while that's wild, the even wilder stat is the next closest one is at 9%. Yeah, 41 at, at Rolex and 9% at Omega. Wow. And then uh, 22% new and 78% pre-owned. Okay. Um, this this includes new old stock as well. Now, not that new old stock. I think it's, a, it's the biggest chunk, but still. And um, again, new watches accounted for around 20% of the same sales volume in the first half of 2022. So what we can agree on is people in the US and Germany buy most of the watches. They buy mostly Rolex and a bit of Omega, and they both mostly buy pre-owned. Now, pre-owned, we can argue if a, if a brand new Rolex, you know, flipped straight out of the AD is new or new or um, or um, used. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, so then, and then you can you can look at some price developments, and um, you see a, a bit of a peak at the beginning of 2022, and then a teeny tiny bit of decline towards uh, towards June, so first half of 2022, and then um, the report goes into the analysis of certain models, and and I don't want to read them all. Uh, but tell me which one you're interested in. So we have the uh, the Nautilus, we have the Daytona, do, we have the Royal Oak. Let's do the Daytona because I'm kind of curious how the numbers. Um, okay. Yep. So the Daytona, and we're talking about the 116500LN, right? So sure. Uh, white dial, black black uh, ceramic bezel, obviously the new one. Um, 
So the suggested retail price, as you said, is thirteen thousand five hundred dollars. The peak was uh, around the first, well, the first Q of twenty twenty two. So around March. Um, I don't see the exact number, but it's closer to fifty than forty thousand. So something what you said, forty seven ish, eight ish. Um. In 2021 July, the price was about 32,000, and now the price a year later in July is about 37,000, 38,000. So, so compared to the peak, yeah, it's it's going down. Hmm. Um, if we look at the active listings, the 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 supply went up um, in 2020. Basically, in 2022, January, it started to go up and it just went up, 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 up every month. Whereas in 2021, it kind of declined. And the purchases went up when the, when the, um, when the active listings went down. And as the active listings started to go up, the purchases went down. So kind of the scissors kind of opened, as they sure, say. Sure, the supply demand is, yeah. Exactly. So now you have a ton of supply, but but not much purchases. Um, funnily enough, this this report also has some of the the dress watches, the the Langenzuna eighteen fifty, the Calatrava, and the Varshan uh, Constant fifty six. But what's more interesting, I think, is that there's a, a whole page dedicated to the Moon Swatch. Hmm. Okay. So. Um, Again, the moon swatch, uh, the hype was around $2,000 in the first, and this is, a, this is moon swatch in general, right? So there's no differentiation between the colors. So the, the, the peak was $2,000 in January, uh, sorry, March, 2022. And now it went down to around 600 in August, 2022. Huh. So it kind of stagnates around the $600 average price. And Interestingly enough, here the supply and demand kind of followed each other. So as the supply went up, the demand also went up. Okay. So you don't see this, you know, the scissors opening as you saw with the Daytona. But this also says, all right, there was enough demand out there to follow for a period, right? And that will yes. probably crack off here too. So yes. I mean, if we if we you know did analysis on different models, so the the moons and the the Marses and stuff, you know, I'm sure we would have much different numbers. Yeah, and and of course Neptune's and highly sought after. Yeah. But um, and also that there's another chart that compares the the moon swatch uh, prices. I, I mean, the moon swatch uh, traffic with the with the moon watch with the Speedmaster prices. Mm-hmm. Which was around between five and six in January 2020, average, and now in July 2022 it's over seven thousand, <laughs> average, and the supply and demand um, kind of stagnates. So even with the moon swatch, after the moon swatch release, the the purchase requests peaked. But then, since then, they went back onto the onto the same level as they were in 2021. Meanwhile, the active listings after the Moon Swatch release tanked, and now they kind of also went back to 2021 numbers. Okay. So um, yeah. So speak, speaking of Omega, that was the other comment in this report, the uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, that mm-hmm. 
you know, Omega sells, I want to say they said on average at a 13% discount to retail. Um, two exceptions being the Ed White 321, which has, I think they said, come down by something like 7% uh, and still still well above retail. And then the Silver Snoopy, which mm-hmm. has, uh, they state uh, production has started to catch up to demand and it still trades for 71% above retail, but that is down 29% since peak which hmm. earlier this year. So yeah, k- kind of uh, interesting about Omega because <clears throat> it, well, as we spoke, they just raised their prices, right? So yes. I would also think that that will have a little bit of an effect. I mean, that will show in the secondary market, right? A, a, a natural price rise, I guess, as you know, they can take advantage of a little bit of uh coverage let's say by the by the new new watches correct so exactly so seeing what you just saw and what i what i just told you what you read in the report here's a bold question do you think that the moon swatch release in the long run now it's been almost six seven eight months mm-hmm. do you think it hurt the brand or it, or omega benefited from the hype i think in the end it was a benefit i think so too actually yeah. i i I don't think it was a bad move. No, I think um, because if you didn't know anything about them or, you know, what the heck the significance is, you know, there are probably a lot of people are like, oh, well, what's Omega? And let me find out more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And No, I agree. I think, it, I think it was a good thing for them. Some people said it. I, I, I read some comments. I'm never going to buy a Speedmaster because – you know, this whole moon swatch thing just cheapened the brand for me. Okay. I think this is, I think it ended up lateral damage, right? Yeah. And I, and I think also now that it's kind of quieted down, not that, not that you can walk in and buy whatever you want, you want. I think it's, uh, I think it did nothing but give the Omega name out to people who, like we said, didn't know it, or maybe are making a, you know that they're they're younger buyers or something, and being introduced to this luxury brand that is cool enough to do a crossover. Because you think about mm-hmm. other luxury brands, like we talked about Ramova and others that do mm-hmm. collaborations with Supreme or whatever it is. And I think that this was a pretty uh, a pretty innocuous way for Omega to do something like that. That was still on. You know, it wasn't so far away from them, but yet, you know, very different and youthful. Yeah, I totally agree. So I think in the end, it was a it was a good move. Um, funny enough, when I was at the boutique last weekend, dropping off the watch, you know, they no longer have the moon swatches in the window at the Omega boutique. Oh yeah, no, they're well, at least not the one in Frankfurt. So interesting. Yeah, and. By the way, did your did your friend uh, manage to get the the remover he wanted in Frankfurt a few weeks? Oh yeah, ago, he did. He got uh, he went to one store and picked up what he wanted, and then went to the other one and got um, got what he wanted. And yeah, they were probably nice. all said and done thirty percent less than the U.S. Hmm. So crazy good deal. Well, he was lucky then. That's good. Yeah, he in the end managed to 
to get what he wanted. But in both cases, you know, he got there when they opened and there were people waiting. So, yeah, yeah stuff was yeah. gone in 30 minutes. Just had to be, I guess he just had to be early enough to, to be one of the, yep, yeah, one of the first ones. And, and hopefully the people in front of him didn't want the same stuff he did. And then, yeah, cool. Yeah. But it's, it, I mean, it is like that, right? We talked about this, talked about Supreme. We talked about the sneakers. We talked about the baseball cards earlier with the auctions and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different market, but it isn't at the end of the day, right? No, it, it's not. I mean, when we talk about this now being a speculative market, there are those people who just look at this as a way to differentiate what they're investing in. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if I told, did I, did I share that story with you? I think I did on, on the podcast here when I met, uh, um, some folks here in Frankfurt, this would have been like early in the year. And so one of the well-known dealers, we'll, we'll leave it out here cause I didn't clear it with him yet. But anyhow, I, I, mm-hmm. I met him at a hotel and there was somebody there. He was buying something from who <laughs> in the end was somebody we actually happened to know. Um, and, I, and I mean that from a family perspective, which was interesting. And mm-hmm. he was talking to me how he was handling some, uh, you know, some pretty large investors who were kind of saying, Hey, here's X million. I want you to put it into Daytona Royal Oak Nautilus, you know, buy Mm -hmm. tons of watches, basically liquid watches, or as they perceive to be liquid, you know, these big, you know, the, the, the typical watches that everybody wants and they, and these are probably people worth hundreds of millions or whatever it is. And, and just, they wanted to diversify by throwing X million into watches like they would with wine or art or something Mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, obviously they've, no matter how wealthy you are, I guess you watch the markets and people move in and out of investments. And I don't know if those are the folks who are dumping things or if it's your regular everyday person who just got lucky and picked up a Royal Oak and, you know, maybe above retail and is now concerned and getting out, but it will be interesting to see where the bottom is. I don't know. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm going to be very curious to see how this winter goes. And I say that just because, I mean, you know, here in Europe where everybody's talking about how, how much it's going to cost to turn on your heating. Right. So yeah, and I think Europeans versus Americans tend to tighten tighten the belt faster <laughs> when when they have concerns, especially here in Germany. And I I wonder, I really do, and I'm not sitting here predicting 2008 or 2009, but I sure. I I think that watches will be a um, a distant thought for a lot of folks for a period of time. That's my view. I mean. Maybe it's uh, it's interesting to revisit this topic in six months. Sure, know, once, sure. Uh, once in March or April, once we're out of out of um, <laughs> out of winter and, and kind of out of uh, uh, um, spring in a way, we'll see how how that goes. And and I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of um, uh, similar reports that will come out. And of course, next year is around March is watches and wonders again. I guess so. It's always interesting in that kind of shakes uh shakes things up a bit right mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning of the year but um 
but yeah, but it would make sense to 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 listen to this episode and and, and go back uh, to these thoughts in in six months and see what, if anything, because we never know what's going to happen. And then, of course, we're talking about the new market, the the, the pre owned market. We're not even touching vintage, which is a totally different ball game, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, it, look, I, I was listening to uh, our buddy Eric Wind. This was like a few months back, right on. Um, on his podcast and he was talking about people buying, spending crazy money on watches that are in serial production. And Mm -hmm. uh, I am, I'm in agreement. I think it's crazy really. I mean, okay. If you're a person who's got to have a Submariner and whatever you spend five or six grand over to get it because it's your 50th or your family member buys it for you, whatever. But if you're doing Mm -hmm. it and you think it's, um, you know, that, 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 that's a great strategy for a watch that's going to just continue to rise in value. To me, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we're not talking about a good that is, you know, made in low numbers. It's just, okay. There's, there's been a lot of demand or at least speculative demand, but vintage to me, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if watches get a bad name in the press for, for going down and just being kind of a, a questionable thing to put some money into or collect. Sure. They'll be hurt, but I still believe that, you know, there are only so many call it nice, uh, angle chronographs out there, right? There's, they're not making anymore. And to me, I think that's always got a, always has interest. Now people could totally decide they don't like that style. Kind of like with Rolex bubble backs, they fell apart years ago when they were the biggest thing. Um, they still have value, but you know, you have trends that change in vintage, but I I still think for me, I feel more comfortable in that space than I do, you know, buying some current watch at some crazy price. I know I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And I, as I think, uh, but we both kind of talk about this from time to time when we, when we bring up certain pieces that you have, or I have, or, or I bought or, or you're eyeing and. And, um, you know, sometimes we talk about, about how prices develop, just like with the X33 we did earlier in this episode. Um, it, it is a very interesting topic. And, a, and I think it's a very, very different topic. And it's, it's worth mentioning. It, it's, it's uh, you know, from time to time, it's worth, worth talking about it. Um, but yeah, maybe not today anymore, because we've been, <laughs> we've been on it for over almost a year, but almost an hour. But uh, yeah, but it's... Um, I, to me, it's it's a bit like I wouldn't say art because art is kind of unique, right? There's a there's a um, there's one sp- specific Basquiat and there's one specific Klimt, yeah. uh, but it's more like vintage cars. And you talk a 1960s Mercedes SL or a Pagoda. Yeah. Yes, maybe they made ten thousand pieces, but out of the ten thousand, how many do you still find after sixty years? Exactly. Maybe a thousand, maybe five hundred. That's the same thing with the chronograph. It's if it's rare enough. Uh, um, that's the that's the indicator that the price might go up and and yet you don't really see it these days i i feel that maybe people or or big money although i i agree with what eric said but i think on a, on a grand scheme of things big money maybe moved away from vintage and towards pre-owned and, and new you know and that's why but i um, i also think balash with vintage i also think a lot of it really occurs not at the auction 
Yeah. I, I think yeah. an awful lot of that goes on behind the scenes and they're very discreet sure. people. And look, if there's a good number to be had, um, you know, you, you may have an intermediary, but versus either, you know, wanting to be discreet and not going to an auction house or paying fees. Yeah. It, it, it's, it makes sense to do things behind the scenes. Uh, right. But then there's a difference between the two to five K vintage and the 5200 K vintage. And, oh yeah. And yeah. I think what Eric is talking about obviously is more the 20, 30, 50, 80, 100 grand vintage, right? The vintage Patek complications, the vintage um, day, day dates and that kind of stuff. Whereas obviously the market that I'm looking at is these Excelsior parks, the Angelouses, you know, the 321s, the old speedies and, and, uh, and that kind of thing, which is two, three, five, and then maybe up. Um, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Anyways, it's a very, very interesting topic. Yeah, and we'll see. It, it'll be interesting. Like if the auctions, if the auction houses perceive a slower turnout, they may not have the big headlining uh, pieces. They may purposely choose a call it a nice, but not nothing crazy, because then you know there there doesn't risk so much of disappointment. You know. Mm-hmm. if if the bidding totally. is not good but yeah totally. it will be it'll be interesting to see so I, I i know we're we've been kind of waltzing through this but i uh i do have one question for you okay so you know let's say things continue to come down um the secondary market prices get closer and closer to retail. And I, I, I still remember like 08, 09, I always tell that story. Well, 2011, how Daytona's were available in the U S but they weren't here. So let's yeah. take that watch out of the picture and maybe like the Royal Oak or the Nautilus, but I don't know some other watches that maybe are hard to find, or frankly, all the different steel Rolexes. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> I kind of know the answer to this because I, I know what kind of buyer you are, but, um, I'll ask it anyway. So, you know, all that stuff becomes more viable now at a, at a retailer at, uh, at retail price. So Mm -hmm. is there, is there anything out there that you would consider buying if it were no longer kind of a hype piece and you could just go in like a normal consumer and get. You mean Rolexes mostly? Well, I guess so. I mean, heck, we could throw the silver Snoopy in there, I guess. Um, The 321 Ed White. Yeah, fine. Well, um, I'd love to have a silver Snoopy. Sure. I'd love to have an Ed White. Sure. Um, Not really. Yeah. No, not really. I mean, these are... You know, marvelous watches. Don't get me wrong. And the silver Snoopy is, is the, the the blue one is really a, a beautiful piece. And I and I and I I met Eric, you know, in, in Tokyo not too long ago, and and he had his, and it's a, it's a wonderful watch, really beautiful piece. Yeah. Uh, the new Ed White, I'd, I'd much rather have a vintage one for the price of the new one, but that's just me. When it comes to Rolex, maybe a GMT, but only because I have the vintage one, so it would be nice to have the counterpart, but. But I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I'm. I'm. It's funny. Yeah. I, I'm good. That's the only. Uh, I think that's the only one I would consider as well. Would be the uh, the Pepsi. The yeah. Yeah. And 
I think I'd want it on Jubilee. Um, but that that's the only one that I look at and say, yeah, I think I would, I would consider that. Uh, I don't love the case, but the colors, you know, like you said, we, yeah, we've I, got the vintage yeah. ones and it's just sort of an, a, it's a pretty hard yeah. color combination to, to walk away from. No, totally. That's the thing. Like I, I like the, I like the, the, the green one, the Sprite or green lantern or whatever you want to call it. I, I quite like that. It's, it's left-handed. Um, I like the black and green. I really love green, you know, and you both and I from time to time rock, uh, olive green chinos, uh, I get your occasional uh, J Crew baby <laughs> messages in WhatsApp, and I, and I know what's what's going on. So you know, I, I like the color. Um, I like the Pepsi color too. As I said, I have the vintage Pepsi, so either a Pepsi or or a green. But but if I if I'm never able to get one, I'm I'm good. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm with you, and I think that I would not be the kind of person who says, "Oh, they're available now," and I don't, so I don't want them. That's that's not me. It never was mm-hmm. when I could get one. Um, but mm-hmm. not that I could ever get one of those. But I could get a Batman. I still remember that. And I, yeah, I I, I don't know if I would want it enough to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess it also depends on what circles you're moving in, you know, because if, if, if it's all around you, maybe it's not that interesting because we, at the end of the day, we buy vintage for, I guess it's the hunt is part of it, yeah. right? You want a nice example. And then when it, when that's the, that's the 57th Batman you see in the office and yeah, whatever. But, um, I'm, I'm definitely not around people like that. And I guess you either when it comes to the office. No. And, Things like that, uh, but but still, I, I I totally appreciate Rolex and the, and the quality and and what they're doing. And I'm not a hater. I'm not a, a, a snob. I'm not a I'm not riding Rolex. And no, I'm I'm kind of neutral about the brand. Well, um, but yeah, I, I will say this, and I can still remember it in 2011 when I when I bought the the last new one, uh, the sub. I, and it's it's got like that. It's kind of how Mercedes was always viewed in America, right? Like that was Mm -hmm. what everybody aspired to. Yeah. And there is something about going to a store and being able to pick one out and being able to open it up at home uh, for the first time. I don't know what it is. It's like just this, and maybe it's, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's because we've been conditioned to think this way, but it was like, wow. You know, I, I, I I get it. So I don't, I I hope it comes back for other people, you know, who don't, Mm -hmm. and and maybe for other people buying it in the secondary market for above retail feels the same. I don't know. For me, it would really hurt the experience. So I, I hope it comes back for them. I hope. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because, because I, I just talked to a friend of mine the other day and he's a, he's a sports journalist and he told me the story, or us actually was in another podcast, how he bought his his OP forty one okay. in Budapest in the boutique, and he said he he tried one on and he said I don't like this color, but I liked it in I, I like it in blue. And the lady said, Oh, we're getting one next week, and he said, Okay, sign me up. Next week he went back and he bought the one. This is 2020, mm-hmm. 21. so not too long ago. OP forty one, right? And um, I saw the watch on his wrist and we met and, and it's a lovely piece. Mm-hmm. 
And that's that's not his first Rolex and not his first nice watch. But it, but the whole experience, you know, is he he gradually moved from vintage to Tissot and Tissot to Omega and Omega to Rolex and Cartier and he has all these watches. So that's the that's a cool story to hear, you know. Yeah. That's the 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 the, the, the if you will, the trajectory I, I like to, well, to hear. That's, these stories. that's actually what keeps, I think, the secondary market vibrant versus these massive peaks like this. You know, if mm-hmm. people feel like they can go buy them, that keeps it going. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. okay, they, they want a new one five years later and maybe they sell that one and it's still a nice watch. And, okay, for somebody who can't afford to buy new and buys it at a discount used how it used to be, it keeps it going and we'll see if we get back there. I think that if Daytona prices, for example, ever came down to retail on the secondary market though, you would have a lot of crying people, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not that oh, I care, yeah. but <laughs> it would be a lot of crying people. So, Oh yeah. Well, we'll see. Balash, anything else you wanted to add? No, not much really. Uh, just one one little tiny thing to uh, before we we sign off. Uh, I asked you about Remova, and uh, it just reminded me that I I saw a picture of this Remova harness. Remember this bag for your bag, yep. and uh, I posted a picture. I shared Remova's pictures, a bag for your bag, um, and uh, I I got some pretty spicy uh, replies on my Instagram from <laughs> from people. <laughs> um, <laughs> not necessarily um appreciative when it comes to this this thing so um yeah that, it's not by by no means it's remover bashing it's just that i think it's uh we're, we're on the same page with that but i'm i'm it's a very very interesting uh new perspective when it comes to luggage and that, that you opened up for me a few weeks ago when we talked about this and uh i'm looking at the prices and looking at uh, uh a remover and I'm, as i said i'm going back to tokyo so i'll try to look look around and see what's going on and maybe I can give some some insights or some updates once I'm back about uh, about luxury or well now it's luxury luggage uh, prices and l- luggage market you know what you should get you should get an old school aluminum remova briefcase well trust me I'm I'm crawling eBay on a weekly basis for crazy stuff like that I'm- you should walk into the office with that and people will be like dude that guy need, that guy means business today <laughs> or or he's got it like handcuffed to his wrist, and who knows what's in there right that day may come that day may come call it I'm the, not sure the nuclear that. football or whatever the uh oh, yeah exactly <laughs> with the Lufthansa logo on it or something like that i b m I saw some i b m cases vintage remover bags uh suitcases with i b m logo on it so some crazy stuff, so we'll see but that's for another episode. With that, Mike is out. And Balaj is out as well. 